Isaiah. So let's read chapter 2 and the very beginning of chapter 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. To what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon. Lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the hills from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for what a kind is he. And then chapter 4, verse 2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been Recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Amen. I'm going to tell you exactly what that means in just a moment. Let me just uh, 
encourage us that studying this book is a good thing for us to do. We may be unfamiliar with this kind of material. Uh, The prophetic books take up a a good chunk of our Bibles from Isaiah right through to the end of the Old Testament. Isaiah is the second most cited Old Testament book in the New Testament. Even as we read it, you may have picked up all sorts of allusions that run left and right through the Bible. But it's not easy to get our heads around this. Now, I've done a little bit of a history lesson for you. So up on the screen, Helen's going to stick it up. There you go. That's Isaiah. Okay. On the left-hand side, you see Isaiah the preacher. There's Isaiah the preacher. He prophesied 740 to 700 BC. That's a long time ago. That's when he spoke. All his sermons he preached, if you like, are gathered in this book. But he preached them between 740 and 700 BC. And that's the people of God. In the people of God then, in the Old Testament, they lived in a land. The land was called Israel. By 740 BC, the land had divided in two. The top bit, you'll see there, in blue, is Israel, its capital, Samaria. The bottom bit, you'll see there, Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. Isaiah spoke to the people in the bottom bit, to Jerusalem and the people of Judah. When he spoke, 740 to 700 BC, the bit at the top fell to Assyria, conquered by the Assyrian Empire. Now, Isaiah speaks to the bottom bit. What does he say? Well, he tells them that because of their disobedience, because they have turned away from God, one day in the future, he will put them into exile in Babylon. Remember Isaiah is writing here? He says some things that will happen in the future. He's a prophet. He looks forward to the future. This would happen. He'll put them into exile. He says this, and it did happen 100 or so years later. The people of God went into Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. You can read the story of the exile in a book like Daniel. If you read the very beginning of Daniel, you'll read that God put them into exile. God's pulling the strings. He's judging his people. Isaiah said that would happen, and it did. Isaiah said the exile would come to an end. Isaiah said that one day a shepherd will come who will lead my people back to Jerusalem. And they'll rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. That shepherd in history was a man called Cyrus, the king of Persia, the conquerors of Babylon, who led or allowed the people to go back in 539 BC to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple. You can read of that in a book like Nehemiah or Ezra in the Bible. As I said, it would happen and it did. He also said that way down the track in history, one day a Messiah would come. For unto us a son is born, Isaiah chapter 9, wonderful counselor, mighty Lord, prince of peace. He said that would happen one day, and it has happened because Jesus has come. He's come. And that when he came, Isaiah says, God would establish or God would begin or there would break into the world a universal and everlasting kingdom. Jesus would come. And the message of salvation would no longer be for a nation called Israel, but for every nation on the earth. And we live in that time when the gospel is going to the nations of the world. And one day, Jesus will return. And when he returns, as I said he would, that's not happened yet. There'll be a day of judgment, 
and the everlasting and universal kingdom of God will come in all of its final full form, what Isaiah calls a new heavens, a new earth, Zion, the city of our God, the glorious Jerusalem. Now, you all look shell-shocked. There'll be an exam afterwards. Now, you've got to, when you study a book like Isaiah, now, actually, this is not kind of dry, is it? It's not. Because I want to know, and I want you to know. I want you to know how history is going to work out. I want you to know what God's plan is. You've got to know that when Jesus Christ returns, there will be a final and full expression of the universal and everlasting kingdom of God. You might think, when the Bible speaks about the new heavens and the new earth, the new city, the Zion, that that's just another world away. Will it happen? Will it happen? Isaiah said it would. Will it happen? This happened, this happened, this happened, this is happening. It's striking when you read a book like Isaiah, what he says will happen. Now, when we read different bits of Isaiah, like our reading today, it fits somewhere into this time frame. Okay. (laughs) You all look shell-shocked. Welcome to the preacher's study. And you know, we're in this together, you and me. Andy and you, Neil and you, Andy Robertson, whoever is preaching. It's a kind of partnership thing as we wrestle together with God's Word. I don't have the answers. You've got this in front of you. Together we wrestle with it. And knowing God's salvation plan is important. Right. Thank you, Helen. Now let's turn to the text. Now, it's really important if you have your Bibles open. And uh, if you also have... The service sheet, the middle bit of it, is a little outline with some headings. That'll help you. Now, what we're going to try and do is get our heads around this stuff and then apply it at the end. And uh, it's powerful stuff if we get our heads around it and the application's no less so. So three things I think Isaiah says. The section we're looking at is chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 6. And, and Isaiah doesn't, he gives us big sections, right? So, you know, when you cut a bit of wood, you've got to cut with a grain. You've got to take the sections he gives us. And they're just a little bit long to read all out. Yeah, so we read the first half of the section. The section runs from 4-1, uh, from 2-1 rather, to 4-6. And he says three things in this section. One, he says, he points forward as a prophecy, means looking forward. Prophecy of God's universal and everlasting kingdom. Secondly, the prophecy of God's judgment. And thirdly, an invitation to walk in the light of the Lord. Okay, so let's look at each one. Firstly, prophecy of God's universal and everlasting uh, kingdom. Helen, stick the slide up again, can you? Not convinced you got it the first time. At the beginning and end of this section, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, he's speaking about something that's long in the future. He's speaking about this, God's universal and everlasting kingdom. And he's going to say stuff about when it began, when Jesus comes, and what's happening now in the time we live And he's going to say stuff about the end, Judgment Day, when Jesus returns. So that's the stuff he's speaking about at the beginning and end of our section. Okay? Let me show you that in the the text. Thank you, Helen. 
Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, that phrase, the latter days, or the last days, is used in the New Testament to refer to the period between Jesus' first coming, when he inaugurated God's universal and everlasting kingdom, and his return, when his kingdom will come in its full and final form. So Isaiah is speaking, verse 2, about the coming of God's everlasting and universal kingdom. And we live in that time, the last days. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And Isaiah's way, and he has lots of ways in his book of referring to the same thing, But here he uses the image of a mountain that is higher than every other mountain as a way of referring to God's universal and everlasting kingdom that will come. He does something similar in Daniel. He talks about a mighty mountain that will fill the whole earth. Daniel chapter 2. And the image of this great mountain is to convey to us that God's kingdom is universal and everlasting. And therefore, in contrast to every human or earthly kingdom, which is not, they'll come and they'll go, but not God's kingdom. God's kingdom will not. It will be a kingdom that stretches to every nation of the earth. And of course, that's happening all around us today. And it will be eternal. It will not end like Babylon or Persia. Or any other kingdom. Now it's uh, everlasting. And it is ever expanding. The message of salvation in Jesus. Is for all people in all nations. And since Jesus came. And inaugurated God's universal and everlasting kingdom. The message of salvation was proclaimed. Not simply to a nation called Israel. Or Judah, that little bit of land in the center of one part of the world. But when Jesus came, Isaiah said what would happen is that that message of salvation would go to every nation on the earth. Which is why we live in these days, evangelism must be our first priority. Why sending people and training them for God's mission field is to be our first priority. It's simply getting on board with God's plan. Isaiah says at the end of verse 2, in this everlasting and universal kingdom, all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. Every time we hear about and pray for our gospel partners, we are hearing and praying about Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled. So think of Jen. And we think of Jen Wright working in Congo Brazzaville with Wycliffe and we pray for her and we pray for all the practicalities of what she does and rightly so. But what Jen is doing in Wycliffe is in a sense fulfilling what Isaiah said would happen when God's universal and everlasting kingdom would come. People from every nation on the earth would turn to Jesus. And all she's doing is putting the gospel into their own language so they can and they are. Think of China. Who would have thought that millions of people in China would turn to Jesus, to the Lord? Who would have thought that? Isaiah said it would happen. And it is. 
Every time somebody becomes a Christian, trusting in Jesus for their salvation, acknowledging Jesus as king of God's kingdom, as I as prophesy is fulfilled. And countless millions of people have turned to Jesus. And while there is time, countless millions more will. Now, what do we make of verse 4? Look at verse 4 with me. He, the Lord, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruding hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, this verse, I understand, is inscribed on a wall mounting in the United Nations office in New York City. Now, good a job as the United Nations do, world peace is beyond them. World peace is beyond any of us. It's interesting, after the election, the day after an election, you hear politicians speak with honesty and sincerity and almost a sense that they have that there is a, there's stuff beyond their ability. But we'll be back here again in five years going through all the same stuff. United Nations do a wonderful job. I was on their website checking if this motto is one they have, and it is. And they do great things. What they need to add, though, on the wall of their headquarters in New York City is a little phrase at the bottom, only when Jesus Christ returns will there be no war. And what Isaiah is doing in chapter 2, verse 4, is, is going beyond the time when Jesus first comes, the time when all the nations will turn to his message, He's going right beyond the time when Jesus returns to the final destination of the people of God, the glorious city of Zion, the new Jerusalem, where there will be no more war, no more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. Helen, stick it up again. Keep you on your toes. So what Isaiah chapter 2, verses uh, 2 to uh, 6 is doing is starting here and going right forward into all of eternity. That's what he's saying. Okay, thanks, Helen. The other end of the bookend, chapter 4. Turn to there. Verses 2 to 6. Now, here I think what Isaiah is talking about is the bit after Jesus returns, i.e., the, the final destination of God's universal and everlasting kingdom. The new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem, the glorious city of God. Here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, he calls it the branch of the Lord glorified. He has different ways of saying the same thing. And he uses these different descriptions to pull together all sorts of lines in the Bible. And in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, he is speaking about the place where God's people will live and reign with him for eternity. In that day, chapter 4, verse 2, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. It's a little bit like Genesis 1 and 2, or Revelation 21 and 22. Beautiful and glorious and fruitful and peaceful. 
Some of you would enjoy watching the Chelsea Flower Show. My comment in Service 1 elicited a number of responses afterwards, people telling me when they have been, when they're going, and what was their favorite garden. That may apply to you too. 17th of May in London. It's wonderful, the Chelsea Flower Show. What do you see when you go? You see perfect, immaculate, beautiful gardens. Did they just happen? No, they didn't. Endless, endless hours of sweat and heartache and sacrificial stuff went into producing these perfect ordered gardens in full bloom. When the Lord Jesus returns, his saving work complete, the new heavens and the new earth will be beautiful and glorious. It will be a fruitful place of abundant provision and deep contentment. Jerusalem and Isaiah's day may be destined for judgment and destruction. The walls may fall down, but God will build a holy city, a holy people full of justice. The final image in verses 5 to 6 of chapter 4 is of the journey's end of the pilgrim people of God at last secure in God's presence forever. There are lots of allusions to the period of the exodus, the exodus out of Egypt before Isaiah spoke to the people of God, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, the, the canopy around God's people, and all that is in Isaiah's mind, but not the promised land that is Judah and Jerusalem, but the promised land that is the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. One last time, Helen. Oh, too good to be true. Christianity is, sounds like it's far too good to be true. Or well, you're spot on if you think it's too good to be true. Because all our assessments of true and what is possible are, are corrupted by our humanity. It's too good to be true that it will all end like what is written on the wall of the United Nations. As I said it would, but it's too good to be true. Let me just remind you, that he said, this would happen, this would happen, this would happen, and this is happening all over our world. People are turning to Jesus. To conclude, I think, for any reasonable person that it's too good to be true is to be saying, well, all that stuff didn't happen. But it did. Okay, thank you, Helen. That is definitely the last time. Now, they're the two bookends of this section. And you've done really well to concentrate. But it is important, and you'll grant me this, it is important that you and I know how world history is panning out. It is important that you and I have in our minds, and many of us here are Christians, that the end is that. It's really important that you and I know that that motto on the wall of the United Nations will not come true until Jesus returns. So we don't despair. But we despair enough when we read that motto on the wall to turn to Jesus in whom it can happen. Now these are the bookends. And with them in our minds, and do not let them go out of your mind when we turn to the bit in the middle, which is tougher stuff. Zaya's point is that you hear the message of God's judgment with the bookends in your mind. Never let the bookends go. Never let his warnings of judgment push grace out of the gospel. Grace always triumphs in the end if we submit to God. Now, the bit in the middle... Chapters 2, verse 6, through to the end of chapter 3, is a prophecy of God's judgment. And we'll pick up this again next week. 
today I want us to concentrate on chapter 2. Now, in verses 6 to 22 of chapter 2, Isaiah is looking forward into the future. And he is speaking, and there is uh, one more chance for the slide, Helen, I was wrong. <laughs> He's speaking about the final day of judgment. I thought you deleted the slide for a minute. Isaiah is going to speak in chapter 2, verses 6 to 22, about that day, judgment day. Okay? He's spoken about all this stuff. Now he's going to speak about that day. Okay, that's definitely the last one, Helen. The final day of judgment. Now, now link that in your minds with the bookends. this glorious future. But there's a day of judgment when Jesus returns. Logically, because God is holy and just. The return of Jesus will mark a day of judgment when all those who have rejected the offer of salvation in Jesus, who have not submitted to God's rule, that is, Jesus is king of God's universal and everlasting kingdom, will be judged for all of eternity. Now, let me just encourage you to see that this kind of material about Judgment Day when Jesus returns is not lost somewhere in the dark pages of the tough stuff of the Old Testament. It's more in the New Testament, in Jesus' teaching, than even in Isaiah. To conclude that it's something in the Old Testament would lead one to conclude that God has changed and if God changes, then you and I, well, <laughs> have nothing to trust in. He's the same. This is normal biblical material. God has set a day. Verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day, a final day of judgment. Against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, that's a... He's looking at the nations of the world, lofty and lifted up against all the oaks of Bashan, against the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every tower, against every fortified wall. And what Isaiah is describing here is all the achievements of humanity, all the stuff as human beings that are great. We dragged our children around the museum yesterday. And we looked at all the achievements of humanity, and they are great. But if you place, as a human being, your security in them for your eternal salvation, they are dust. How do you know? Because all the achievements of humanity in the days in which Isaiah lived are in our museum behind a bit of glass. And God's universal and everlasting kingdom is alive and well. At the heart of all the achievements of humanity are human beings. We're going to sing a hymn at the end of our service by John Newton. You could not get a greater human being than John Newton. I guess we'd all agree on that. But John Newton did not place 
one iota of his own abilities in his eternal salvation, he placed it all in God. At the heart of all that humanity achieves is human pride. And human pride means fundamentally, I will live my life independently of God, or I will have the confidence that on judgment day, when I face the Lord Jesus, I will have enough to say that he will welcome me with open arms, even though I have lived my life independently of him. Human pride buys the myth that God will say to us that it will be all right in the end. God never says that. And uh, let me just throw your mind out to the bookends. He does say right now, it can be all right now for eternity, right now. Walk in the light of the Lord. On that day of judgment, God will humble the proud, verse 17. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Some of you may recognize Revelation chapter 6 and 7 in these words. And it's frightening stuff. The final day of judgment will be a terrible day for all people who have rejected the offer of salvation in Jesus. Isaiah makes that quite clear. Now, there's a big sting in the tail in chapter 2, verses 6 to 22. And the big sting in the tail is in verses 6 to 11. Just look at that with me. It's really important that you get this. And now, as your minister, I'm really keen that you get this in your heads. It's so important. It's quite clear, I think, that in verses 12 to 22, Isaiah's focus is broad. It's on all the surrounding nations, all humanity throughout history who reject God will be judged on that judgment day for all eternity. But the sting in the tail is that in verses 6 through 11, Isaiah says to us that there will be included as those who will be judged on judgment day for all eternity people who call themselves the people of God or people who look like they are the people of God. That's what he's saying in verses 6 to 11. He is speaking to Judah, to some of the people of God, and they will be judged for eternity on that day. So verse 6, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. The point he is making that you look at them, they might look like they are the people of God because they live in that great big city with a great big temple. But they're no different from anyone else because their hearts are no different. It's the same verdict for them. Verse 9, so man is humbled. Remember, he's talking here about the people of God or those who would call themselves the people of God. Each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into a rock and hide in the dust. It's the same as verses 21 and 22. See what he's saying. He's saying... 
Look at the bookends, the glorious future for the people of God where they will live and reign with me forever. But there will be a day of judgment. And on that day, all those who have not trusted in Jesus, who do not say he is king of my everlasting and universal kingdom, will be judged. And part of those who will be judged will be those who call themselves the people of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, in saying that some of those who call themselves the people of God in Isaiah's day, will be judged for all eternity. Why is that? The answer to that is because they do not know God. They might call themselves the people of God, but they do not know God. And that is as true today as it was true then. They might be the pillars who hold up churches, but they do not know God. They might have impeccable attendance records at churches, but they do not know God. They might be ministers. They might be elders. They might be scholars of Isaiah. But they do not know God. They might even be in CUs and universities. But they do not know God. Surely, though, the people of God in Isaiah's day would have thought, Look, look, look around us. These glorious walls, this city, this temple. God is with us. Well, God would bring it all crashing down. For there was nothing left. In our first service this morning, when we arrived at, uh, whenever it was, nothing was working. All the chairs were in the wrong place. In fact, these chairs were in here. And I'm kind of a stickler for these things, so I got them all changed. The video didn't work. But you know what we need this morning? We don't need any of that. Yes, we do in all sorts of sensible ways. But in the end of the day, all we need this morning is a roof over our heads to listen to God saying to us, I do not care about all that stuff. Anything, anything that you think is your security I don't care about that. What I care about is the state of your heart. And he says to ministers and elders and churches, members of this, that, and the other, you might look like you are pillars. You might look like you have a perfect attendance record, but I see your hearts. And God wants from us love and fidelity and true hearts. On that final day of judgment, there will be people judged for all eternity who look like and think they are part of the people of God. And the Lord Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, in chapter 3, as I said, Isaiah speaks about judgment on God's people now. We leave that for another time. And what he means by that is not the judgment for all eternity, but just God is not indifferent to how we behave as his people now. And Isaiah will very gently over the coming weeks, as individuals and as a church family, just breathe the air of the refiner's fire into our hearts. 
And he'll say things to us like, Scott prayed for Edinburgh City Mission. That's great. But he'll say, where were your hearts when he prayed that? Were your hearts full of a sense of the injustice of this world and for those in real, real spiritual need? When we announce something like quench or whatever it is or the quiz, it fills my heart with a sinking feeling that once again I feel I've got to try and ask people, our neighbors, our friends, whatever it is. But where is the true state of my heart? Am I that close to God? Do I love Him that much? Am I as keenly conscious of my eternal destiny? that I'll have the bottle to go and ring the door of our neighbor again and say, will you come this time? That's what Isaiah's refining fire will do. Or in my life as a Christian, you know and I know full well that your minister's life is not fine. I know your lives are not fine. You know, and I know fine well, that this veneer of evangelical respectability and holiness that exists in our communities is not true. God knows our hearts. And so what Isaiah will do with us gently is he'll take our lives and he'll gently, by grace, not by judgment, not with a stick, but by Jesus, he will smelt the dross and he will burn up the iron ore that pollutes all bits and pieces of my life. And he will do it by causing me and you to come closer and closer and closer to God and to get our heads clear that for all eternity, you and I are going to live in a world that is too good to be true. And we know it will happen because everything else has happened. But let me close today not with talking about God's judgment, his refining work in our lives now. Let me close simply with the straight line question Isaiah's text here in chapters 2 leaves us with is where will we be for all eternity? And the little bit lurking in my mind is will there be anyone in this room who were they not to do something in their life now, will be somebody that Jesus says, I never knew you, even though you had a perfect attendance record and you were a pillar of the church. Now, our job is to listen to Isaiah, so that is not the case. And how does he say that to us? There are two verses. The end of chapter Two is one. Look at that with me. Chapter 2, verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is you? If you're sitting here and you think that in one tiny little iota, your life is sufficient to live for all eternity on the basis of yourself, do you really have the confidence in light of this to stand before Jesus and say that? You were wrong, Jesus. I was right. Or if you're 
nowhere near Christian things. Do you really believe that you, any more than all the best of human achievements, will last and live and thrive for all eternity? Stop trusting in man. In other words, stop trusting in yourself. And then the wonderful invitation of grace, chapter 2, verse, what is it, 6, 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Stop regarding man. Stop relying on yourself. Stop living independently of God's king. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What a terrible thing it would be that if on judgment day somebody in this room who thought they were a Christian, the Lord Jesus said, I never knew you. Now you know in your hearts if you really do know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. He died for you. He rose for you. You can have full assurance by trusting in him. Come, as Isaiah's prophet says, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great prophecy. It is hard to get our heads around but it's mighty powerful stuff. Through your prophet, you tell us the destiny of world history, the destiny of your salvation plan, glorious new city, a new heavens, and a new earth. And yet, when the Lord Jesus returns, there is a day of judgment. For all those in history who have not trusted in Jesus. And Lord, for some who think they are in the company of the people of God, but they are not because they do not know God in their hearts. They have not turned conscious of their need of forgiveness with a repentant, humble heart to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness through His death and His resurrection. Lord, help us if we have not yet humbled ourselves before you now to do so, lest we will be humbled by you for all eternity on Judgment Day. Help us all, Lord, to walk in the light of the Lord. And we pray that as we go on studying Isaiah, that your refining fire that is your word and all of grace and not a rod or a stick to be their backs will burn up the dross, will smelt the alloy, and you will render us closer to you, walking more closely, walking more faithfully on your path. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.